gentlemen, welcome to the 2022 Fearless Summit. Next on stage, he's the founder of the Fearless Summit and the senior pastor of Mavuno Church, a movement of over 30 urban congregations spread across 10 different nations. He's a best-selling author of numerous books, including Financial Fitness, Seasons, The Stages of a Leader, and Mizizi, Plugging into Your God Purpose, a book that has sold over 20,000 copies worldwide and been translated into over six languages. He's also an internationally renowned conference speaker who has spoken on all six continents. An influential thought leader mentoring many younger leaders who are seeking to bring positive change to their cities and nations across the African continent and beyond. Please help me welcome to the stage, Moravi Wanjao. Let me just say that the vision of this summit is to provide inspiration and models. Inspiration and models. For too long, the Church of Jesus has separated Sunday and the rest of the week. And we've separated our faith from the marketplace. And Fearless Summit is our place that gives us inspiration and models to bring those two together. The kingdoms of this world have now become the kingdoms of our God and our King. This is what the scripture calls us to prophesy. And that's what we're here to do at Fearless. And let me just say that every year, we're always amazed to see the people who take their time. I mean, there are people in this room who have paid a lot of money to be here. There are people in this room who've come from very far to be here. The person sitting next to you is somebody who has a passion to change the world. That's the only way you can actually explain. They're taking time off from earning money, from making a living, to actually be here in this place for the next three days. And so the person you're sitting next to is no ordinary person. Feel some awe right now. That person you're sitting next to is somebody who has a, a God-given passion to change the world. That is why they're here right now. And it's a huge thing because we live in a world full of apathy. We live in a world where people have given in. A world where people just go with the flow. And the people you see that are here are people who are determined to swim upstream. So just look at your neighbor with a bit of respect right now, y'all. Yeah, because the person sitting next to you is just no ordinary person. And as you've heard, our theme this year is limitless. Turning passion into movement. We believe that passion is not enough. It's just one step, but it's not enough. It's a crucial key if we want to change the world, but we want to move just from passion to the place where we catalyze gospel movements that spread across the entire globe. History teaches us that there are two ways to change the world. There are two ways to change the world. The first, you raise an army, and then you kill everyone around you and take over their land. That's, you guys read history, right? That's a bona fide, proved way of changing the world. You've heard of people like Alexander the Great. You've heard of Julius Caesar. You've heard of Genghis Khan. You've heard of Napoleon Bonaparte. You've heard of Shaka Zulu, right? I mean, these are guys who changed the world. They did it by raising an army and killing everybody around them and then taking over their land. But you know what? For us as followers of Jesus, that's not quite what we aspire to do. That's not really the model that is here for us. And so the other way to change the world, that's the one that's open for us, is to begin a movement. Is to begin a movement. What's a movement? A movement is a group of people who are working together to advance their shared vision. Whether it's political, whether it's social, whether it's artistic. And today we see movements all over the world. And when you look around and you open your eyes, you're going to see movements. People who've understood this truth. 
that if you want to change the world, you start a movement. Whether you're talking about Black Lives Matter, ISIS, the LGBTQI movement, the Me Too movement, Brexit, many, many other movements, too, too many to name. Everywhere we look, movements change the world. But movements are not a new phenomenon. They've been there forever. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth began a movement. And that is why we're here today, because a man began a movement. And here's the crazy thing about this man who began this movement, that his last instruction to us is that we too would start movements of the gospel across the world. This is why he said, go and make disciples of your family. Is that, is that Of nations. He doesn't want you to just change your family. He wants you to change the nation. And the only way you change a nation is through starting a movement. Tell your neighbor, if you want to change the world, start a movement. Amen. So today I want to just share with you some recent discoveries. Just discoveries that I've been making in this journey of seeking to understand movements, of seeking to understand why they are so critical to leadership, why they are so critical to the church of Jesus today, wondering why is it that we've not been taught about movements, wondering why I went to seminary for so many years and nobody taught me that movements were critical, wondering why we don't hear them taught in our churches, what's going on? I want to talk about some of the things that I have been learning in this season. 17 years ago, 17 years ago, God gave uh, inspiration and motivation to a group of people uh, who joined me and we set out to start this experiment called Mavuno Church. I mean, it was answered right from the time that we were sent out. We were sent out by Bishop Oscar, my spiritual father. Uh, he's, a, he's, he's a lead of Nairobi Chapel Movement of Churches, an amazing movement of churches. I just want to honor him right now. Would have loved for him to be at Fearless, but he had to travel. Uh, he, he, he just sent his blessings as he did that. But he, he, he sent us out. And as he sent us out, the one thing that was beating in our hearts, we wanted to start a church for people who did not like church. We recognize that our city is full of people who don't like church. I'm a church kid. Any church kids in the house? I grew up in church. I was raised in the church. I thought everybody went to church. But then I came shocked on me to realize that most of my city doesn't go to church. 84% uh, perhaps of Nairobi does not go to church of any kind. And I was shocked to discover this. I said, my goodness, I thought we were a Christian nation. And we had such a beating heart that we would start a church for people who did not like church. People who felt that church was not relevant to them. And right from the beginning, God gave us a, a mission statement. Uh, turning ordinary people into fearless influencers of society. I mean, this, this, is, this is a mission God gave us. And, he told, and the thing that we discovered as we explored this mission is we discovered there were three parts to it. The first is a passion for the lost. A passion for the lost. Because it's about ordinary people. We, we, we work with ordinary people. People who come as they are. We want to reach people where they are, as they are. In the language that they are familiar with. As Paul says, all things to all people. That indeed some of them would understand that they are called to this great calling. The second passion is a passion for transformation. That God gave us a passion for transformation. That's why the word turning is in that mission statement. Helping these people become everything that God created them to be. And then the third passion is a passion for societal change. That's why fearless influencers is in there. Tell your neighbor you're fearless. Yeah, our determination, our passion, the thing that God helped us to begin to understand. Nobody was called to be an ordinary Christian. 
There is no such thing as an ordinary person. The people that we consider great in the faith, those people who did extremely, uh, incredibly brave things for the, for the Christian gospel, the Martin Luthers of this world, the people who are known because they gave their lives to big things, that's the ordinary Christian. That's what God wants every single one of us to be. Because Jesus himself said that the things you've seen me do, you'll do what? You'll do greater. Which means that the basic, the basic level of Christian exploits is Jesus. The basic level, I mean standard one, if you never do anything else as a Christian, the whole of your life, the least you can aspire to is to do the things that Jesus did. Raise the dead. <laughs> Feed the people who are hungry. Uh, uh, heal the lepers. Heal the feet. Like this is what the basic, the basic, the standard one Christian, the least you can ever be is where Jesus was. And so we said we have to turn these ordinary people into fearless influences of society. And with time, we began to understand that this is what the Great Commission is about. That when he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to obey everything I've commanded, the things Jesus did. He wanted, the, he wanted them to learn to be like him. And when we become like Jesus, we change the world. So God was actually calling us just to obey the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of nations. We began to understand that the best way to make disciples is to start churches. We began to understand that we have to start communities that would then turn ordinary people into fearless influencers. If you want to be obedient to the Great Commission, you must be about starting churches. Again, this is something that nobody ever taught us. We thought that pastors start churches and the rest of us sit in the pews and we're fed. The regular Christians. But you know, the church is the one that Jesus says he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Hey, listen, he didn't say, I will build my business. He didn't say, I will build my NGO. There's nothing wrong with businesses or NGOs. They're critical. They feed us. But the church is what Jesus is passionate about. And there's no believer who is exempt from this work of being part of lifting up the church of Jesus. Every single one of us is called to plant churches. And so God gave us this vision statement that a multiplying movement of churches found in every capital city of Africa and the gateway cities of the world by 2035. That's a vision that God gave us and the thing that we set out uh, to do as a church. We want to see a family of united, closely connected churches that are multiplying and spawning new churches and impacting society wherever we go. And you know, by God's grace, we're able to do some great things. Uh, by 2015, we are about 20 churches and uh, quite a few different countries. We had gained some fame around the world as people who are planting churches and who are passionate about discipleship. Uh, but at the same time, I began to run into a big problem. I began to discover that it's complex. It was complex to run the churches the way I'd been taught to lead them. Uh, the churches we were planting were becoming very complex to manage. I mean, you're in different countries, so they have different legal systems, different economies, different currencies, different cultures, different cost of living. Let me tell you, this thing became such a headache for me. I mean, I found that what was happening now is that we were finding dissatisfaction and politics and silos and sabotage. And I was like, God, what is this? I didn't set out to lead a multinational. I just wanted to bring people to Jesus. 
I just wanted to do the work of the Great Commission. And I was so discouraged because I just found this thing is impossible to manage. It's impossible. At one point, I came this close to resigning. This close to resigning. I, I came to the place where I was like, I, I can't do this anymore. It was killing my soul. It was killing my soul. I was losing the joy of serving Jesus. Anybody ever found yourself losing the joy? I was losing the joy. It's just now I started wondering, now if the pastor resigns, what do the rest of the people do? <laughs> Our pastors resign. What do we do? The rest of us as Christians, do we also resign? Being, what do we do? We go fishing. We just, by the way, I almost went back fishing. I almost went back fishing. I, I started thinking of all the things I could do that had nothing to do with being a pastor. It was a very discouraging time. But around four, five, four to five years ago, God had given me a, an inkling about what the problem was. I was in the UK and I was visiting a church called Freedom Church. And uh, they are a phenomenal movement of churches. Incredible. I mean, amazing people. Uh, have you heard, Pastor Kev, have you heard us say, come on? Yeah, we stole that from Freedom Church. I mean, they are amazing people. Uh, and you guys stole it from <laughs> Pastor Kev. I mean, I mean, they are just an amazing church. And I remember sitting down with their pastor and we were talking. They love Mavuno. Uh, we've worked with them to help them plant a church in Mombasa. Uh, they're just an incredible movement of churches. And I remember talking with them, and I just wanted, I was so intrigued to find out more about them. And their pastor was very, they're just loving people. So we had a great time. We spent a whole day in London. They were showing me around. At the end, we had a chat about our churches. And we just had a time when iron sharpens iron. You know, guys, you've met, you've just had a whole day with them, and you just feel you can say anything. And so we, I challenged them on a few things, and they challenged me on a few things. And one of the things they say to us is, they say, they say to me, is they said, we love Mavuno's mission. They say, That's, it's such a fantastic mission. It's easy to get. We can see why you guys are excited about it. We love your vision. We love what you're calling your people to do. But they said, but what culture are you exporting with this? The problem you might have is your culture. You need to go and pray about the culture of your church. You know, when somebody tells you about... The worst thing you can ever do to a parent is talk to them about their children. And they're hearing the glowing things and they're very happy. And then you say, but that child of yours now, they... You know, at that point, the conversation can get a bit strained if you're not careful. Huh? Even if you're a pastor, sometimes I want to say some things to my congregation members. And I have to be very politically correct when it comes to their kids. So I remember at that point, I was like, man, that goes deep. It was, I mean, I was like, okay, okay, I don't even want to talk more about that and changed the subject, and we talked about other things. But that thing didn't leave me. And it was really nagging me, and I was like, what is culture? What is this thing that God wants us, what wants us to change? What, what is this thing? And I began to think, is this the solution? Is this the thing that is causing me so much pain? Because you see, uh, culture refers to how you do what you do. How you do what you do. Culture is not what you do. It's not your vision, it's not your mission. Culture is how you do what you do. And here's the thing you need to understand. You can have a great mission. You can have a great vision. But you know what? Your culture can sabotage you. So that you never end up achieving the things you think you're setting out to achieve. In fact, there were, I think it was a management guru whose name is Peter Drucker. He said this thing. He says, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And lunch <laughs> as well. Culture will always trump your vision. It doesn't matter what you tell people you're setting out to do in your company. It doesn't matter what you've told people your church is about. 
It doesn't matter what the statement that is hanging on the wall of your reception says. Your culture is what will determine whether you achieve it or not. And I believe that was what was happening to us as a church. I believe that we had a great mission and a vision, but our culture was killing our joy. Our culture was killing our joy. God continued to show me these things. And I remember at one point I was so burdened that I had a meeting with my executive team. Uh, we had a retreat. And I just had no agenda except my heart was just heavy. And I remember when, I, when we started the retreat, uh, we had a, a whole day retreat. Actually, it was a three-day retreat. And, the, and, and we were going to introduce some new executive team members. So we told, I told the new team members, come at lunchtime because I've got some things I need to unburden with my, with my guys. And in the morning, the first thing I told them is, guys, I don't enjoy leading at Mavuno anymore. Uh, this is not working for me. I said, I feel like it's work coming to work. I feel like I don't enjoy uh, our, 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 our relationships. I feel like this is it's just not it. And I said, I don't know what it looks like, but I know it's not this. And I say to them, I really sense that the only way I would love to work together with you, the only way we can work together going forward, is if we truly love each other and become a family. And I say to them, we've been a team and an efficient team, but that's not enough. It's not going to do what God wants us to do. And I said, guys, if you don't love me and I don't love you, and we can't love each other and become best friends, then I don't think this is what God wants us to do. And I said, I'm willing to let you each, each of them in the room led four or five churches. I'm willing to let each of you take your four or five churches, go start your thing. And I thought, you know, as a pastor, when you tell people, let's love each other, you're like, that's a solution, isn't it? I was sure they would be hugging me and they'd be like, yes, we've been waiting for this. You guy, shock. What a shock. <laughs> My gosh. Like, everybody just changed. Their face changed. Everybody became guarded. They're here. They know what I'm talking about. And we said, and guys were like, why? Like, why do you want to change our culture? I mean, it's working. Like, aren't we, is it something we've done? Is it something you don't like about us? What? And then we talked more and I discovered, my goodness, the, we, were, we had hurt each other over the years. All the years we've worked together, somebody said this, somebody mentioned this about my church and I heard it. I was not supposed to hear it, but I heard it. And the wound has been in me. We were carrying offense in our team. And I had no clue. I was that guy at the front just thinking everybody's loving Jesus. But we had issues with one another. And as we talked, the more we talked, the more resistance I felt. And I just kept leaning in. And I was like, guys, we, have, we can't leave this room. I mean, our guys came in at lunchtime. We had quick lunch with them. We told them, wait, we'll call you. And we went back to our room to finish this issue. And in the process, tears began to flow. Honesty came into the room. People started saying, Pastor M, when you say this, it really hurt me. And somebody else said, when this person preached this, it really hurt me. I think they were talking about... And we just had a time of confession and, and tears. And by the end of that time, by 4 o'clock, because 4 o'clock is when we finished our conversation, our simple conversation, is when everybody said, we want to try and make this thing work. Let's try and make this thing work. What? What? You know, I, I really feel that God was convicting us to move from a, an efficient corporate model into being a family, into being a family. And let me just tell you, I, oh my gosh, I wish, I wish I could call my guys here to tell you their stories because it's changed our church. It's changed our church. 
everybody, even the ones who are new in Jerusalem, <laughs> new in Mavuno, they know there's something happening. Like you walk in and you can tell something has shifted in our relationships. Today we are best friends. Uh, Pastor Milton, we're best friends. This, these guys are my Pastor Faith over there. I love these guys. Like we love each other. It's a completely different ball game. Like we, 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 we sit in meetings and it takes us like, sometimes it takes us like two hours to start a meeting. Because we're just talking. We're just catching up. We're a family. And it's changed everything. And it's like God was just, at that point, just beginning to open me up to there's something that has to shift in the culture if you want to become what I want you. Then in the process, as I was going all through all this, I began to learn a very significant thing. This one just dawned on me. I think the Holy Spirit gave me a revelation. I understood at that point that all my mentors until then were leading great churches. None of them was leading a global multiplying movement of churches. None. And you know, I'd followed great mentors. Very, very, I've been mentored by, by the way, I've been mentored by important people. <laughs> I have serious, I have serious, yeah, please apologize. I've, been, I've got very serious mentors. I've got very serious mentors. And, 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 and I've sat with them. I mean, Apmo knows some of my mentors. I've sat, I've sat with them. And, and, and they're incredible leaders, incredible leaders. But here's the thing I began to understand. None of them was leading a global, multiplying movement of churches. And yet that's what Jesus' commission is about. I mean... Inside every follower of Jesus is a seed for a global movement. And why wasn't I seeing it happening? Why wasn't I seeing it happening in all the great churches I'd followed? I mean, there are people who I'd subscribed to. There are people whose books I'd read. Who helped me become everything that Mavuno was. I mean, I read people like Bill Hybels. And I read people like Rick Warren. And I read people who had mega churches. And we were a mega church. But we were not a global multiplying movement of churches. And I began to realize, my goodness, something was wrong. And so I began to study global movements. Who? I started saying, who has a global movement that is multiplying, that is planting churches across the world, that is, is viral? And you know, to my shock, I discovered there were very few in the West. There were, there were almost non-existent in the U.S., which is the main source of our theology today and our, and our, and our models. Very few very, very few. But then I found that there were countries where movements were many, a dime a dozen. I mean, these things are common in some places. Go to Nigeria. Like in Nigeria, movements, like I remember we had a chance with Apmo and his team and our team. We had a really beautiful time in Nigeria uh, as teams. And we got a chance to visit two of the, the, the greatest, I think, Nigerian uh, global movements, uh, uh, Winners Chapel and, and our redeemed Christian Church of God. They're, they're on opposite sides of Lagos. And you know, we, we, we were astounded. I mean, we were blown away. It's, it, it was more than anything I'd ever expected to find. These guys are everywhere in the world. They're planting churches everywhere. They're there. <laughs> but you know what? Between the two churches, we were shocked to discover there were like six or seven other global movements we'd never heard about. Like as we are passing, somebody tells you that one has churches in 100 countries and they're like 5,000. You're like, what? And this other one you've never heard of, mountain of something, whatever, whatever. They have, and you're like, what? It's like they're everywhere. Isn't that something you want for the gospel, isn't it? Miracles everywhere. <laughs> By the way, how come the church is awake on this side? There's, there's something, there's something... 
you guys need to transplant something on this side. I think you need to wake up these guys. They need to have something that you get. Impart something on them. <laughs> Show them how to be. Come on, somebody. Wow. What a shock. <laughs> Jesus is on that side. Ah, yeah. Guys, we need Jesus on this side as well. Amen, somebody. Yes. Come on. Come on, come on, somebody. Wow. You know, it's interesting. These movements were in Nigeria. But, you know, I got a shock because I traveled to Korea, I mean, to, to Brazil, and I found movements all over the place. And I was surprised. This one has 100,000 people. It's spreading across the world. Actually, we went with Pastor Christian. Uh, uh, Pastor Christian, uh, it's such an honor to have you here. You're such a blessed man of God. Uh, this guy used to be my spiritual son until he became a bishop. I mean, he's such a, I really honor this man. And he's such an influential global leader. And I thank God for you, uh, Bishop, uh, bishop Christian. So he took me to Brazil, by the way. And uh, my goodness, I mean, I was shocked to see the movements of churches. I mean, we had an incredible time, didn't we? And every, I mean, we found churches that are like, they're all over Europe. They're all over Africa. And you're like, what? Like, I've never heard about this church. It's everywhere. What are they doing differently? I tell you. They're waking up. They're waking up. Amen. <laughs> I mean, I went to, I mean, you, you, you go to Korea. You go to India. The places that you would not expect, and that is where the church is multiplying. It's viral. It's growing. What are they doing different? And the crazy thing I also discovered is that these churches are not writing. They're not writing what they're doing. And I wondered, is it because they're from oral cultures that more, they're more easy? Like, you know, Africans, we're oral, isn't it? We, we talk easier than we write. Is that the, the thing? Although we are changing that in Jesus' name. Yeah, we're, we're writing now. We're writing now. But you know what? I mean, I found that, I, found, I, I wondered, is that the issue? Then I discovered maybe they are too busy doing the thing to actually write about the thing to theologize about the th They're so busy just keeping up with the wave of the Holy Spirit. They don't have time to explain to others what they're doing. In fact, the only books that you would find from these movements, they write for themselves, like for their leaders. And because they use such insider language, it's even hard to understand what they're saying. And so you try and read it and you can't find it. But meanwhile, the church in the West writes every day. Podcasts, YouTube videos, uh, uh, training, I mean, during, during, um, during COVID, I think the pastors in America were pastoring the whole world. Pastor who? <laughs> I mean, they're so famous and they're so known and they're pastoring everybody. You know, it reminds me of the famous words attributed by George Bernard Shaw. He says, those who can do, those who can't teach. Because here's the thing, those models are shaping the church, but they're not multiplying the church. And I began to see there's a danger in what is going on. Now, by God's grace, about that time, my good friend Aposomo introduced me to the writings of an incredible teacher called Doug Hayward Mills, uh, Bishop Doug Hayward Mills. And the guys who are, talk, are shouting have, have been impacted by Doug Hayward Mills. They know what I'm talking about. Um, he is one of the few global multiplying movement leaders who's actually writing a lot about what he's doing. Uh, he's, he, has about, he probably has a library of about 60 books written for pastors. 
I mean, so he's actually creating the literature for others to follow. And he actively is training other churches to do it. And I remember just being like, oh my, finally, somebody who's writing what I'm looking for. And because, because of the culture gap, then what I did is as I watched up more follow, then I was like, ah, this makes sense. This is what I needed. And I began to watch and follow uh, Worship Harvest and what they were doing. I began to follow Lighthouse, uh, Chapel, and what they were doing, and Bishop Doug, and just being like, my God, this makes sense. This is what I was missing. I had an opportunity to visit uh, uh, Harvest Family Church and to see, wow, this is what they're doing. Because his church has been tuned into this stuff for the last few years. So they're way ahead of us. And just to see, my God, this is what a global multiplying movement of churches looks like at the inception. And I was like, I want this. I want this. And you know, it's, very, it's been very interesting because, uh, let me just say, when you, start to, when you enter a church that, is a, that is, has the seeds of a movement, you feel it. There's an it in that church. There's just something. Like guys, if you're from Nairobi, visit Pastor Jimmy's church. You will never be the same again, by the way. Maderi, we have to go with you and visit this guy's church. You come out just going like this. What did I just experience? Like they're crazy. They're on fire for Jesus. Like they've lost, they've lost, they've forgotten all coolness. And they're just, they're not a cool church. They're a multiplying powerful movement of the kingdom. And that's what we are supposed to be. That's what we're supposed to be. So today I want to turn, speak about, just briefly about starting a kingdom movement through creating movement culture. That's what I'm going to talk about. And I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 2, verse 43 to 47, um, the foundational scripture of the early church. And this passage describes the characteristics of the first church, which was on its way to becoming a powerful global movement, one of the most powerful movements the world has ever seen. And I believe it teaches us some of the characteristics of global movements. I've been trying to study now, becoming, I want to become a scholar of global movements. So I began the job of just looking at them and saying, what makes them distinct? Because like I said, they don't write. And when they write, it's hard to understand. And so my hope is that we can actually begin to distill some of those things here at Fearless uh, as we go through the next three days. And my hope is as you learn, you're going to understand that that business that God gave you, God wants it to become the seed for a global movement, a multiplying movement that will impact the world. It's not a little business that God wants you to have a kiosk and die with it and feel proud about it. That's not it. Because he says, go and make disciples of nations. Your business is actually a tool to make disciples of nations. So if you're a business person, you're in the right place. Because you need to understand the, the principles we're going to be teaching. Because they're for you. If you're a church leader, you need to understand that you must be about a movement of churches globally changing the world. You can't be content with your church with 20 branches and be very happy that you're, you're big. And you've got a mega church. It's not enough. It's not what the gospel is about. Acts chapter 2 verse 42 to 47. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And it says everyone was filled with awe. That's what I told you. When you go to these churches, you, get, you feel awe. Like there's awe in that place. And it says awe. <laughs> there's awe. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And then it says, every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. 
They broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And let's say this together. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. I mean, this was written after they had already become 3,000 people. So you can imagine 3,000 and then numbers are being added daily. It means you're a multiplying movement from day one. From day one. There are five things I see in this text that are requirements for kingdom movements. Five things. And the first one, kingdom movements require, kingdom movements require apostolic and humble leadership. Apostolic and. You're going to find with all five there's an and word. There's some things that often seem to be opposites. But somehow movements bring those things together. And this is the first one. Apostolic and humble leadership. Verse 42 says they devoted themselves to who? The apostles teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And then it says in verse 43, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by who? By the apostles. You know what? God gives his vision to an individual, never to a committee. Read the Bible if you've never seen that. That God never gives a vision to a committee. He never gives a vision to a group of people and says, you guys figure it out and figure out who's in charge. He never does that. When you read the scripture, you're going to find almost a hundred times the word of the Lord came to. Boom. And a name follows. That God always gives vision to a person. And that person then is, is, is entrusted with that vision with a community to fulfill it. It's interesting, in the early church, it's very clear that the church listened to the Apostle Peter. He had a voice. You read the first chapters of, of Acts, you're going to find that there was a special role that he played. He's the one who preached the first sermon. How come guys didn't say, by the way, it's my turn now, you've talked enough. It was a long sermon, by the way. He didn't say, okay, 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 now let me, let me add my part. Even me, I was there with Jesus. No, no, no. They understood there's somebody who's speaking. When the next chapter, he goes to the temple and he's walking with John. John is a disciple that Jesus loved. But when it's time, Peter is the one who speaks and he looks straight at the man and says, silver and gold, have I none? But such as I have, I he doesn't say we give, he says, I give. By the way, these are not things I understood until God began to show them to me. The church listened to Peter. Peter is the one that opened the door. To the, to the movement of the gospel in Samaria because he had to, he ha, he's the one who always ticked it. Even if Philip is the one who went, Peter is the one who always gave the tick. When the church went to Antioch, Peter is the one who gave the tick. You, you read Acts, you're going to find that he's the one who God would use to confirm. And even when the gospel now went into places that were unclear territory, nobody had ever known the gospel should go to Gentiles. It is Peter that God called to go and argue that with the, with, with the church and say, by, if God can appear to us, God is not a racist. If God can do the same thing among them as he did among us, he is not a racist. God blesses people from every nation who seek him. And so Peter has a role. He has a clear role. And then later on, you begin to understand there's another guy who has a very quiet role, but he is highly esteemed in that space. And he's James. I believe with time, the brother of Jesus begins to assume a certain level of authority that the believers all look up to him. Most of the world hasn't heard of Bishop Adeboye. They haven't. He's not the most famous person in the world, is he? But he's changing the world. These leaders, they also foster a radical dependence on prayer because they know 
me, I suspect, by the way, when you're not that, <laughs> when you're extremely charismatic and everybody just follows your magnetism, maybe you don't need to pray as much. I don't know, maybe that's what it is. Because these guys, they have a humility in prayer. When we were walking, they told us in our CCG that every morning from around 11 o'clock, actually, that's night, huh? 11 p.m. all the way to 4 a.m., Bishop Adeboe is inevitably walking on the streets of their city. Their church is a city, by the way. Uh, sorry, that's, I, I might lose you with that. Forget that part. He's always walking at night. He prayer walks every night for how many hours? Five hours. Five hours. My goodness, radical dependence on God. And this is what happens when you, look, when you see a movement. You're looking for apostolic and humble leadership. If you want your thing, that thing that God has given you, that has put in your belly, to change the world, to become this movement, you have to become apostolic and humble. This is what God is calling his servants to be. Number two, a culture of love and honor. Love and honor. Verse 43, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. You see, the mega church taught us to see church as a corporation. That's exactly what the model I was taught. When I look at all the models I had, church was a corporation. The pastor is a CEO. The, the pastors who work for him are his staff, his, his executive team and his staff. Uh, the, the, the elders are the board. Uh, we have a corporate board. I mean, we borrow so much from the world. And, 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 and the, the members are like shareholders. This is our church. We give to it. We're like investors. We want something back. Isn't that how Christians are today? That's why when you go to a church and you're no longer feeling anything from it, you go to another church. Because as a shareholder, they're not delivering on the promise. I mean, this is a model of church. God forbid. This is what we've made the church to become a corporation, a business. We have a business transaction with the church. And this is what has happened. But you know, these two things, love and honor, they're often seen as opposite in the world. And yet they belong together. They're the marks of a healthy family. So we're really talking about a family culture. Where there's love, people belong and they play. They don't just watch, they participate. They give everything. They, they, they want to, they, it's their family. Let me just tell you, when, I, when we started talking about a family culture, my biggest fear was my pastors. If Pastor James knows I love him 100% and we're too close, he may stop delivering. He may stop performing. Remember the CEO in me is thinking, I need, I need performance. There's a performance review coming up. Will he have given me what he's supposed to give? You know what I found? When there's a loyalty in the family, he gives more than what I expect him to give. Because he's no longer giving because of it's a job. He's giving because of love. And these guys, I mean, I've just found our team's creativity, productivity has actually increased since we became a family. Since we began to love one another. Where, where there's love, people give with all their hearts because it's their family. Uh, when, when, when my dad calls me, I go. He doesn't pay me to go to his house. I go because he's my father. There's a love that is expressed there. And then honor. Honor is the place now that we, when you model and teach honor, people know how to follow. For the longest time, I didn't know how to teach honor. I didn't know how to teach my people that they're supposed to honor their pastor. It sounds very self-serving to teach my team that you need to honor me as your leader. But what I realize is you get what you teach. You get what you teach. If you don't teach your people to honor you, guess what's going to happen, pastors? They will not honor you. They will become political. 
they will become uh, scheming, they will be there for their own self-interest, and you, you will actually end up, you will actually end up wanting to resign from ministry. And by the way, the statistics are there that many, many pastors, I mean, I haven't read the Kenyan statistics, but in the U.S., I remember, I can't remember, Pastor Oscar was telling us about a statistic that came out, I think it was in the uh, beginning of COVID, where almost 50% of pastors interviewed had reached a place where they wanted to resign. Depression is high among ministers of God. High. Just a sense where there's a dishonor in the church. Let me tell you, when there's dishonor in the church, you don't have motivation to keep serving. You want to quit. And you get to a place where you just feel, my God, why am I here? It's such an un up. Ministry is already hard when your people love you. <laughs> it's already hard. When you're working with people who are looking at you in suspicion with every word you say, did you really hear from God? It's, a, it's almost impossible, let me tell you. And I look at someone like a Moses, striking the rock, losing his... The complaining of his people, the greatest leader in the world, he lost his cool because of the dishonor of his people. And I've come to understand that honor is such a huge thing in a family. Right now, our, our church, we've been going through a season when we're learning about honor and how we honor our parents, how we honor our, 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 our husbands in the family, if you're a wife, how we, honor, we show honor to, 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 to our leaders, how we honor our pastors. And let me tell you, when honor starts coming in, the blessings start flowing down. That's what we found in our church. We found so many testimonies of reconciliation, of families being healed. Am I talking to somebody in Mavuna Church right now? Yes! This is exactly what we've discovered. That honor is a powerful, a powerful thing. A culture of individualism is not conducive to movement. It's not conducive to movement. And that's why honor is so important in gospel movements. Let me just say, this one is hard for East Africans to understand. Many of our churches don't practice an honor culture. Many of our churches believe it is our job as believers to keep the pastor humble. Yeah, it's our job. In case he gets too big and then he becomes proud, it's our job to, to make him be down to size. Cut him down to size. And you know what, guys? I truly believe that is why there are almost zero global multiplying movements that are coming out of East Africa today. It's because of that. It's because of a lack of a culture of honor. But I want to say it's changing. We're not those people who are dishonorable. That's not our culture anymore. Our culture is changing as a church. Our culture, and, and we're seeing other churches where we can see the culture shift has happened. It's see, the thing about it is, in East Africa, many of our churches, uh, we, we believe that we don't honor the leader. But also the problem is, in many of the cultures where there's an honor culture, the leaders don't understand that they have a role to love and nurture. So I've, I've, I've encountered many broken and bruised sons in ministry who honored and then were taken advantage of. The devil uses that. That fathers don't know how to bless and sons don't know how to honor. And it's destroying the church. And I've come to understand, you go to the Korean church, you go to the Nigerian church, you're going to find that a major distinction from the Western church and from the East African church. That they know how to have a, an, a culture of love and honor. So number one was what? 
Number two. Number three is a cause worth dying for and living for. A cause worth dying for and living for. Number uh, Verse 45, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had a need. My goodness. People who are willing to sell their property. Somebody selling your plot, Kenyans, to give people in the church who have need. Isn't that the gospel? You say salvation has come to that house. Kamau has sold his plots. Ameuza Prothi. What a shock. That Kamau has sold his plots to... Like, it's radical. Like, he's not thinking about himself anymore. He's thinking about the cause. He's thinking about the people. Let me tell you what happens. For a movement to happen of the gospel, you have to turn your people into an army. The family that loves each other has to also become an army. You don't just become a loving, uh, cozy group. You also have to become an army. You can't have a movement unless you're willing to turn regular consumers into passionate, compelled, self-sacrificing advocates for the movement. I didn't know this. I, at one point, was very happy to be surrounded by gifted people. Very gifted. Today, gifting means nothing to me. Gifting is a beautiful thing. I love it when God gives you a gift. But I would rather have passion and commitment and loyalty and love and being compelled and willing to die for this vision. That's what I look for nowadays. And I'm willing to tell a, a gifted person, it's okay, step off the team. Because that's not what I'm looking for anymore. I've come to understand that, my goodness, this is, this is the key to discipleship. Is people who are willing to die for their faith. People who are willing to die for their church. People who are willing to die for their discipleship group. And you know, we've come to understand that for this to happen, everybody in the church has to be connected with, into this system of discipleship. Everybody in the church needs to have somebody who is discipling them to become like Jesus. And they need to also be discipling others to become like Jesus as well. Great movements make great demands of their people. There's no army in the world that just tells you, okay, it's okay, just sign up. Uh, here's a gun. Uh, go home. We'll call you when we need you when the war comes. No army in the world does that. The, the best armies in the world will put you in a rigorous training environment. And they'll push you to the limits. And they will help you begin to become the best that you can ever be. You know, churches that don't make huge demands of their people will never become movements. Just something I learned. You go to, when I was in seminary, we had a lot of Koreans. Koreans are all over the world. I mean, these guys are global. And I remember that those guys every morning would hear doors opening and shutting. And we knew our Korean friends are going to pray. Because all Koreans across the world, Christians, they leave their home and by 6 o'clock they're in the place of prayer in church. And then they leave at 7 and they go to work or go do drop their kids every morning, at least five days a week. And I remember thinking, this guy, is this a cult? Like seriously? I mean, didn't Jesus die for you so that you don't have to... <laughs> so that you don't have to pray so... It's like, why are you waking up? Like seriously, sleep is so good. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. I'm like, I was like, I was confused. I was like, what are these guys doing? Like, why are they waking? Why are they praying so much? But you know, I began to realize that all Korean churches teach, teach their people this is a basic, basic thing for a Christian to do. You wake up early like Jesus and you pray. And so people don't debate about it. So, inspired by Bishop Doug and Apostle Mo, I asked my team, I, I, I asked my church that we would wake up every morning at 4.30 for five days a week, 4.30 to 5.30, and we pray. And let me tell you, it has changed Mavuno Church. 
It has changed this church. 4.30 to 5.30. We pray at that time. And you know, it's interesting because that was a big demand to make of my people. I remember people looking at me and saying, but I'm, an, I'm a night person. Pastor Angie, I'm not a morning person. What is this? Why can't I pray at midnight? You just tell us to pray. I don't mind you telling me to pray, but why can't I pray when I want to pray? But because of things I'm, I'm learning, I said, no, but I sense the Lord wants us to pray at this time. I remember the pastors around me, one of them told me, I'm, I'm in my mid-50s. I have never woken up at 4.30 all my life. Like, how do I start now? I say, God will give you the grace. But if you're going to remain a pastor in this church, we wake up at 4.30 and we pray. Let me tell you the testimonies that have come from my people. Because we dared to wake up at 4.30 together and join in prayer. Like, it's mind-boggling. I walk into Mavuno churches. I was in Mavuno South last week. The miracles in that church are insane. They're crazy. I mean, these guys, the things that they tell you are happening. People are being healed from brain tumors. People are finding jobs. Like, after the prayer meeting, they pray, and the person is called after the prayer meeting, and they're called for interview, and they get the job. It's like every day there are miracles. And it's happening in all our churches, simply because people are saying, this was a demand made for us from us by our leader. We are all praying at this time. My goodness, it's just, and that's just a small thing, but I'm just giving an example because many church leaders are afraid to make demands of their people. Many business leaders are afraid of making demands of their people. You work for a Muslim, you'll see what I mean. Muslims don't work when it's time to pray. You shut the business. It doesn't matter whether you're or whoever you are. We shut our business and we go to the mosque and we pray. That's how it is. If you work in an Indian shop, there's a God there. And if you're the cleaner, you make sure that that God is supplied. It doesn't matter what you believe. You do it. Because that's what we do. Christians are the most pussy-footed, ashamed for their faith people that they are in this world. Like, if not for Jesus, I don't know how this gospel would be advancing. Because we're ashamed of the gospel. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. So, pastor, why are you afraid of challenging your people to follow what Jesus says? To pray. Bishop Doug says that a basic Christian, basic Christian, prays once a day. Prays one hour a day. In other words, if you're saved and you say you follow Jesus, surely the minimum you can pray. Because Jesus asked his disciples, really? What? Could you not even wait with me for one hour? And based on that, he's like, seriously, Jesus must be looking at Christian students saying, what? One hour. Seriously, you pray for 15 minutes and you think that's, like, could you not wait? For? So we listen to that and we said, okay. Then Bishop Doug then says, for a pastor. Tell, tell your neighbor, for a pastor. And because you're a pastor, because you're in this house. By the way, if you're in this house, we consider you a pastor. For a pastor. He says the minimum is three hours. Three hours. And maybe he, maybe he bases that on the fact that at least the... By the way, for Jewish men, do you realize Jewish men prayed three times a day? Three hours a day? Read the book of Daniel, you'll find that three hours a day as was his custom. He prayed. David prayed three times a day. So I believe that he says, yeah, three hours a day. So when Abmo taught us that, I said, hey, okay, let me just start with a believer level. <laughs> Let's just start with one hour a day. But you know, great movements make demands. 
make demands. And so we, we make demands of our, of our followers. We make demands of the people of Mavuno Church. And I'm not afraid to make it. Because Jesus was not afraid to make demands of his followers. There's something big enough to live for and even to die for. Uh, Christians, we've lost what it means to die for our faith. And movements are not afraid to do that. Number four, everyone follows and everyone leads. Everyone follows and everyone leads. Again, those, th those two things seem to be opposed to each other. But you read this and it says, Every day they continued to meet together in temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. In, in, in the early church, they had the large gathering in the temple where everybody went. But they also had home fellowships where everybody led. Because in a home, you didn't have the apostle come to your home to do the teaching. You are the one responsible. And the church expanded because of these homes. These homes gave them a sense of belonging. And you're going to find that in every kingdom movement. There's a sense of belonging in the home groups. Whatever you call them in your church, there's a sense of belonging. That these are a central part of who the church is. One of the biggest hesitations when people hear about apostolic movements, they always fear. People my generation, people in this part of the world, they're always afraid of those terms because they think, aren't you centralizing power? I've been asked that question many times. Aren't you now asking people to call you their leader? For you to become their spiritual father? For you to become their apostle? Aren't you raising yourself up on a pedestal? And people are afraid of that. They say, why are you exalting yourself? What they don't understand is that true kingdom movements, it's confusing because as much as you see a leader, a true kingdom movement decentralizes power crazily. Because everybody... Yes, I'm the spiritual father of Mavuno, but everybody in Mavuno is called to be a spiritual father to their sons. So we're a church of fathers and mothers. There's so much power given to your people when you're a movement because everybody is an extension of the kingdom. Every home is a church. Every place where your people go, they, they father and you want them to father others. When I led a mega church, I had real power. Because I'm the one who was a CEO. I was the only CEO in the whole church. But let me tell you, Pastor Kevin now, he's a father of a whole movement. Yeah. He's got six, seven churches that he's fathering right now. He's their apostle. And the pastors under him are also apostles to their leaders. And their leaders, they're, they're fathering other people. It's my goodness, there's so much authority that has been passed on that movements are actually the place where there's real passing on of power. And I tell people who come and tell me, aren't you centralizing power? I say, go and look at a mega church pastor leading a big church. And you will find real power there. Like they really centralize power. So I say it's confusing, but don't get it twisted. There's a thing there that everybody follows, but everybody leads. And the only reason I'm teaching my people to follow me is because they will never be good leaders if they don't learn how to follow. And people will not follow them if they, know, they don't know that they're safe leaders. A safe leader is a leader who's following somebody else. That's why, that's why Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. He's, he has a confidence to say that. A safe leader is a follower as well. So in a movement, you're always going to find rapid leadership development because everybody is leading. Like everybody who comes into church is a potential leader. And everybody comes into church and already they're starting discipleship. You, everybody, you have a plan for everybody. There's nobody who comes into church and you're seeing them as a follower. Everybody's like, yes, you become a follower so you can become a leader. And it's a powerful thing you're going to see. Movements are rapidly equipping and releasing apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers every day of the week. 
And that's what you're going to find in global movements. Number five, I'm moving a little quickly now. Simple and reproducible structures. Simple and reproducible structures. Verse 47 says that this church was praising God, enjoying the favor of the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. You know, it's interesting because this movement was organized around households, like I said. And it was led by family leadership. And you find that it was multiplying along those households. And you're going to find that there are so many households mentioned, churches in the house. Paul discipled Priscilla and Aquila in, in Corinth for a whole year. And then he moves with them to Ephesus and they start their home church. He leaves them there and they take a young man called Apollos in their home church and they develop him as well. And he goes to a different place. But this thing is just multiplying. You hear about the household of Lydia, the first household church in Philippi. Household of Philemon, the church in Colossae was in Philemon's house. This thing, what happens is when church is family, church as family is very easy to understand. Because all of us come from a family. It's like the easiest thing to understand. It's a simple model. If you look at the early church, even communion was a family meal. Like all the models of the early church were based around the things that families could easily understand. It's a simple and easy to understand model. You know when you have a Sunday church with 6,000 people listening to you preach every week? That thing is extremely hard to understand. And right now, one of the biggest risks I mean, the, the church in Europe has already understood that its time is over. Um, there's a way that the, 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 there's such a post-Christian sense there. Um, but I praise God because God is raising global movements there. I mean, in, the, in, in their desperation and hunger, I believe God is raising. I've met some amazing movements coming out of England and Germany. I mean, I think their hunger is causing God to do some powerful things. Um, in, 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 in <clears throat> in, in, you're going to find that what happens is if you go to the U.S., many of the churches have these super speakers, super teachers. Amazingly, like they're the top three percentile, one percentile of giftedness in the Christian world. Seriously, am I, am I lying? I mean, some of those pastors, like I wish, like to preach like them would be like a dream come true. Like they preach and it's like they just take the mic and it's like everybody's like this and they move and everybody moves with them and it's like wow they're so how they string words together amazingly and they have churches with tens of thousands of people but let me tell you it's so hard to reproduce that model and that's why the gospel is dying in the west because you build mega churches and here's a crazy thing that happened in the west they build these big buildings because they considered the the church the building they build this big building and then in Europe, those buildings became flea markets and they became discos and they became other things apart from the church. Right now, when I go to America, I find these big buildings that are at great risk because the greatest risk right now is the boomer pastors, these ones that are so famous, are handing on authority. And it's always a dicey thing. It's always a high-risk endeavor to pass on a church of 10,000 people. It's extremely hard. But you know the thing about passing on a movement? When Pastor Jimmy passes on his movement, he already has so many sons and daughters already doing great things that he'll move on and, and, and they'll just continue. I mean, Bishop Doug has how many denominations under him? The last time we checked, it was 20-something. I mean, not churches. 
he has movements under him that are all different. Like one for young people, it's got its own bishops, it's got its own pastors, it's globally spreading across the world. He has 20 of those. Am I losing somebody in the house? I lost you at that point. Bishop Doug can move off the scene today and those movements will continue. The risk of him moving is much lower than the risk of a big guy with a huge church and what he does is teach people on Sunday. Simple, reproducible models. I mean, I remember the RCCG church in Lovington. Um, one of my friends in RCCG was telling me this story that when the pastor moved there, what he did is he, the, the, actually he wasn't a pastor, he works for the UN. He's, he's a guy who works for the UN. Uh, got a great job, moved to Nairobi, uh, got a big house because they know. I'm, a, I'm, I'm an extension of the kingdom. Everybody in the church knows that they're supposed to plant churches. So he got a big church, started discipling people in his home. The thing grew. They even found a venue. Uh, he got an assistant pastor. He got people around him. They grew the thing. Then he was posted to Ghana. And so what did he do? He left his son in faith, the guy who he had brought to the Lord, who was now his second. He left him in charge. He went to Ghana. Repeat. Do the same thing. Isn't that a simple reproducible model? No wonder they're spreading so fast across the world. It's just like everybody going, just like the early church making disciples. I'm going to talk very briefly about the stages of a movement because I think you need to see this. The stages of a movement. Just put up the diagram of the stages of a movement right, real quick because I want us to just, uh, as I conclude, look at that. I'm a good preacher. I usually say I conclude like about five times. So that's the first one. I, <laughs> so stage one of a movement is mission. Mission. Mission is where most people in the target group are unreached. Most of the people, the missionary work is mostly being done by outsiders. So right now, the, the Worship Harvest Church in Nairobi is a mission. Uh, the work is being done. They're bringing in people. Uh, slowly, these people are now beginning to understand, but a lot of the work is being done by the people from Worship Harvest. They know the culture. They're trusted with the culture. Uh, people of peace have been discovered. They're giving them sanctuary. Uh, networks of relationships are being opened up by people who are accepting Christ. That's an exciting part. It's missions. Uh, leadership development is happening in the groups. And right now, they, they have groups. They're opening up mission uh, leadership uh, groups. They're driven by need. And everybody in the church, is, a, is there's a priesthood there. Everybody is a pastor. It's like, we need you. We're a small church. Everybody needs to put their hand on the plow. Then you quickly move. Uh, if the church, if the mission is successful, you move to the next stage, which is where movement actually starts happening. In movement, local people grow in confidence. A viral multiplication starts to happen. Relationships. Every, every home is a part of the church. Everybody is using their home to bring other people to him. Neighbors are coming to Christ. Family members are coming to Christ. And leadership is mostly by believers who are passionate to reach their own people and beyond. Everybody is expected to share their faith. I mean, in a movement, things are exciting. They're home fellowships. It's like there's a revival breaking out. And leadership is happening through multiplication. Development is happening through... The group has grown too big. You need to take your half of the group and go start your church. Go start your home. That's, that's movement. It's not happening because you went to seminary or because somebody trained you. It's because you've been with me. You've seen what I've done. Now do it. That's movement. It's exciting days. As movements continue to happen, basically they end up entering a managerial phase. They need to formalize. They need to start putting management systems. Things are happening too fast. There's so much going on. Believers are, hap are increasing rapidly. So we start to standardize certain aspects of the movement. How do you form a church? We start writing notes. This is how a church should be started. 
uh, how, how, should, uh, how should you support, uh, how should you run a service? And here's a note, and we start to formalize. It's a good thing because we're, we're trying to make sure that it's all, we're not starting a cult here. People are not starting their own thing. There's a lot more literature being written, manuals that are being made, training manuals, more formal structures are coming up. Leadership development starts being done by, by, by institutions. Uh, dedicated institutions for young leaders. When you find good gifted leaders, hey, we need to develop you. And so it starts to happen. Unfortunately, what happens there is there's a, a laity clergy division that starts to happen. Because at that point, you're like, okay, you guys are the gifted ones. Now you need to go into a training place. And the rest of us are not as gifted, or maybe that's not our calling. So you start to see that division. And then you get into the fourth stage, which is a mature phase. And you know, many churches that are in the mature phase, these are movements that have gone into a place where they've become institutional. And multitude, many believers still exist. The churches meet in purpose-built structures because by this point, you've begun to define what a church is. The home is not a serious place. It's just a place for small groups. Uh, but the church really meets in buildings, formal structures. And the requirements for what becomes a church are very rigid. Uh, um, I remember the first time when we started doing communion in homes. And people from some churches would look at me and say, are those people ordained? Like, who ordained those small group leaders for them to be able to give communion? I mean, those are the structures we're talking about, isn't it? Uh, a church that meets in a home is seen as odd. That's not a real church. And mega churches begin to emerge. It's a beautiful thing. But what happens is as gifted, extremely gifted leaders start coming up, all, virtually all leadership development is now done in institutions. So you start to find Bible schools, seminaries, credentials, uh, licensed people. Uh, most leaders serve in full-time capacity or part-time capacity. And you find that lay leadership is less and less visible. The concept of priesthood of believers begins to wane. Believers bring their lost friends to church rather than lead them to faith by themselves. So it's like the way, I, the only thing, I, I don't know how to bring people, I bring them for the, the pastor to preach for them. Uh, that's what the church, the, the building replaces my witness. And professional leaders do the work of ministry and they work hard to motivate the average person in the pew to serve in lay ministry. Institutions become common, seminaries, publishing houses, hospitals, mission organizations, and they impact greatly because they have manpower and budget. And growth may still happen, but nowhere near the viral pace of a movement. Now, often, that's a dangerous place for uh, ministry, and great apostolic leadership is called for to change the trajectory and to bring back the movement. And some of us are in churches that need to bring back the movement into the church bring back the movement into the institution. It's a painful thing, but it needs to happen. You know, I, I just put the diagram still, because there's a couple of things that you, you, you've probably seen happen. Huh? What happens when a stage four missionary, mature church, is sent to a stage one mission area? And they try to start to do evangelism and church planting. You know what they do? They try to plant buildings. They try to plant the systems. They try to bring the things that they know, brick and mortar. And guess what usually happens? They try to reproduce it, and they bring soul's armor into a new culture. And many, many of us experienced that in some of the missionary attempts where the building became the church. And we got structures of stage four before there was even a movement. 
uh, it's a dangerous thing when stage four people go without understanding culture. Uh, when stage four missionaries go to stage two, the movement place, what happens? Often they're shocked by lack of structure. They're shocked by the emphasis on culture, on, on, on love and on honor. They usually think these people are cult. Can you see how they're loving their pastor? These ones are a cult. Uh, somebody comes from a traditional church and comes to Pastor Jimmy's church, they'll be like, immediately, that's a cult. There's no way you can love your pastor like that. There's no way people can love coming to church. By the way, guys in his church, can I report you? They come to church at what time, your workers? Six in the morning to serve on a Sunday. And sometimes they leave at what time? Eleven, not in the afternoon. Eleven p.m. These are professionals. These are people with great jobs. These are people who are leaders in society. They walked into church at 6 in the morning. They left at 11 at night. What's, what do you call that? A cult, right? Yeah, you stage four people. That's what you call it. You call it that because it's like church is not meant to be like that. There's no way people can love their church that much because you don't understand. You've come from an institution. You judge it. And that's a dangerous thing that happens. Uh, stage two workers, when they come to stage four, this one you need to understand. It's a very important one. When you send people from movement to stage four culture, what happens? They are in awe of budgets, buildings, structures. They're, they're in shock by systems. And guess what they do? They try to go back home and reproduce what they saw. And when they come back home, they don't fit in again. And they're disillusioned. And they often leave the church that sent them. I stopped sending my missionaries to go and be trained in the West for that reason. Because they'd come back and they're, they're discontent. Like, man, you guys should understand how to do church. What? <laughs> it's, a, it's a dangerous thing. I think I wanted to put that there because some of you, I mean, it's a lesson we learned. We sent a lot of people to the West and we began to realize if they're not ready, it will destroy them. Uh, it will destroy them. Now I want to start sending people to Nigeria. Where movement is happening. Let them go and learn about movement and come back and bring movement to us. So I want to conclude there. And I hope this has been helpful. I hope it has been helpful. I didn't want to bring a, a sermon. I wanted to give you what I'm learning myself, the things that are useful for me, the things that I'm struggling with. My prayer is that you're going to understand in this season that God wants to bring the movement back into the gospel of Jesus. I believe that there's a revival happening in this part of the world. There's a revival happening in our time. And it's going to happen as the church begins to understand how to become a movement again. And here's the first thing I want to tell you. You, okay, that was my number two conclusion. So I warned you. Number one, I want to warn you that you will become who you follow. You will become who? Some of you are so keen to listen to those podcasts. You're imbibing all the stuff you can from those famous pastors across the world. And the question you need to be asking yourself is, are they leading a global multiplying movement of churches? Bishop Oscar used to say that many times we're drinking from a poisoned chalice. Because if you're not doing, if your church is dying and you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, but you're a great teacher and I'm picking up stuff from you and models, guess what I'm doing? I'm killing my own faith. And we need to understand as the African church that we cannot be putting up, picking up soul's armor, the things that worked elsewhere and thinking they'll work for us. 
We need to be looking where are they working and follow that, those things. So I want to say to my, the people in Mavuno Church, right now, the person who's influencing the most, me the most is Bishop Doug. And the things I teach you, you've seen me teaching in gatherings. I'm teaching from Bishop Doug's stuff. Why? Because it's working for him. It's working for him. It's working. And I want to learn from people where it's working, isn't it? And it's not a judgment to anybody, but I'm like, if the Holy Spirit is working there, we need to be learning. And so Christians in Nairobi, I want to say we need to be learning. There's some things we need to actually remove the wineskins from ourselves. I used to think Nigerians are so passionate and planting churches and following their papa and mama. Uh, we call them papa and mama churches. And I used to think it's because they're not educated like us. What a shock. The average pastor in Nigeria has a... <laughs> like, you remember being introduced to Pastor Godman's pastors? This one went to Wharton Business School. They studied, they have an MBA in water engineering. And this one went to uh, uh, Stanford. And I mean, like, Nigerians love education. They are highly educated. They don't follow because they don't understand. They follow because they've actually come to understand that this is the way that church grows. There's something obviously in their culture that helps them begin to, to, that helps them, makes it easier for them to follow than us. But I say to us as East Africans, let's learn from those Nigerians because their churches are growing and ours are not. So let's follow. You become who you follow. Number two, join God in what he's doing. Join God in what he's doing. You know, you need to understand where God is working and join him in it. Jesus says, I, I see where my father is working and that's where I join him. We need to learn from where movements are taking off and growing. Places like Nigeria, India, Brazil. Do you have a podcast of a pastor you're listening to from Nigeria, from Brazil, from India? You probably are not. But that's where we need to be learning from in this season. And also realize they're not writing as much, so you have to look hard. <laughs> Number three, culture eats vision for breakfast. The culture in your business right now is the one that is giving you the results you're getting. The culture in your church right now, it's what's giving you the results you're getting. If, you're, if, you're, if your thing is not becoming a global multiplying movement, it's because of the culture. So you need to change that culture. And number four, the last thing. This one is actually the last thing. Culture change is difficult, but it's worth it. It's difficult, but it's worth it. Luke chapter 9, 62, Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. I've come to understand that this, it, it has been painful. I'll say it's been painful. We've had to go through things, redefine ourselves, relearn things. It's not easy for an old dog to learn new tricks. It's not easy for a successful ministry to reinvent itself. In fact, your success is often the thing that makes it very hard for you, the success of the past, for you to apprehend what God is doing in the future. The Pharisees were the most successful believers of their day. And that's why they couldn't understand what Jesus was doing. And so your success of the past should not keep you from what God is doing in the future. Culture change is difficult, but it's worth it. You're going to notice in Fearless that this is a very different Fearless from other Fearlesses before. You're going to notice, number one, that we're not going to have a whole bunch of speakers. Uh-oh. What a shock. Oh, when, I, when I did my first gathering, I called my people for a full day from 6 o'clock to 8 o'clock at night. And after I spoke, they all clapped. Wow, Pastor M. And they're all like, I wonder who the next speaker is. Oh, Pastor M. What a shock. 
<laughs> and the third speaker was? And the fourth speaker was? What a shock. But you know what happened is, I began to understand something the seminary never taught me. I thought seminary taught me that you, you learn the Bible to get information that will hopefully bring transformation. But I never understood this very powerful thing that I've learned from Bishop Doug. That you hear God's word for impartation. That's a word that I never even knew what it meant. That when, when a leader, when Upmo speaks to his people, it's not information, it's impartation. And what happens is that the spirit of God that is upon him is passed on to his people. So what you see in his church right now is, is the impartation of what he's been giving to his people. I never knew that. And so in Fearless, you're not going to have many speakers. I'll probably be up most of the sessions, apart from the session, Upmo will come next and teach. Um, but that's one of the things you're going to notice. It's going to be very different. You're not going to find, like we used to have like 100 labs, uh, workshops in the afternoon. We're not going to do that anymore. We're going to have five labs and they're going to be the sectors of society. Uh, church and, uh, no, not church and mission. We're going to have business. We're going to have one for politics. We're going to have one for family. We're going to have one for media. Uh, it's basically the sectors of society. And what we're going to be doing in the labs, we're not going to be giving you new content. We're going to give you questions to discuss as people from that sector, people who are passionate about politics, to talk about how do the talks of today impact us in our sector together? And what are some things we can start to do together as Kenyans, as Ugandans, to change our world together? That's what our labs are going to be about. In other words, it's going to be taking the word from today and applying it together. So fearless is going to be very different. You've, we also have morning prayer. Uh, we have morning prayer tomorrow at 6 a.m. Big demands, guys. Big demands. Movements make great demands. 6 a.m. Somebody say 6 a.m. Ask your neighbor, when was the last time you were in church praying at 6 a.m.? For an hour. So we're going to be praying at 6 a.m. tomorrow. Please be here. It's part of the conference. We want you here because we believe that fearless is not about information. It's about impartation. There's something the Holy Spirit will do in your heart as we come to wait on him for a whole hour before we even start the conference. And that's something you're going to find that is going to be very different about fearless. Our prayer is that this simpler and leaner focus will allow us to have a much more effective time together where we actually begin to understand how each of us can be a movement leader. I want to just pray for us. Father, I thank you so much right now because you're in this house. I thank you that Lord Jesus, in every single believer in this room, you've planted a seed, a seed for multiplying kingdom movement. That none of us was meant to live just in our little locality. You told us that we must make disciples in Judea, in Samaria, <laughs> to all the ends of the world. That's what you told us, starting with Jerusalem. And that, Lord, none of us is meant to just live in our comfortable little enclave as a Christian, come to church and go home. But, Lord, that every one of us is meant to start a multiplying kingdom movement. And I thank you for the pastors in the house, all, all these who I see before me, that, Lord, you're going to use them to do great and amazing things. Thank you for the business ideas you've given your people. Thank you for the enterprises that are running in this room. Thank you for the passions for politics and other places, other, other sectors. And I thank you that in every one of those sectors, you want to see the mountain of the Lord becoming the most prominent of the mountains. And by the way, guys, that's why we don't have a lab for church and mission. 
we stopped that because we st- our mistake we used to think that church and mission was one of the seven mount one of the mountains we realized no 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 it is the mountain and every other mountain has to be informed so as you go to your lab in the afternoon you're going as church and mission is already yours you're already you're already a pastor as you go in now you're beginning to ask yourself how do i apply my pastorliness in the area of business and so father i just pray that you would bring an impartation over your people i pray that this word i've spoken would not just be a word but that lord you'd give them the hearts that are open that will receive it and that will be transformed and we are praying that lord would not leave this place saying what a great conference but that lord would all leave this place saying what a great god and lord that will be committed and passionate to follow him and so i bless your people now in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit and god's people say it together amen